This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, the Tom Hartman program, The Progressive, Moyers and Company, The Jimmy Dore Show, and The Young Turks. And a note that this episode might be especially depressing, actually, so please make sure you're feeling up to the task of handling this one before continuing. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. I know you probably thought the number one thing we subsidized in the United States was man but no, that's number two. The number one thing is ignorance. Think about it. Climate change causes massive drought. We then use our tax dollars to subsidize food so that we don't see the effects of that drought. By doing this, we subsidize our ignorance of the harm of climate change. Most of us don't understand the economy, so Wall Street is allowed to caress it, molest it, and digest it, and then run off with bags of money. Our tax dollars are then used to save these Armani-clad poop farmers when they can't pay their debts. So everything keeps going, and we've allowed ourselves to remain blind. We've subsidized our ignorance. Running out of cheap oil, we begin fracking the frack out of every square foot of the country. What are the consequences? I don't know. You don't know, but we don't need to know. Sure, there are reports of earthquakes and tap water that's now more combustible than Alex Jones sucking helium in a room filled with the parents of Sandy Hook students, but I've never seen any water catch fire. And at the end of the day, we can run our cars and heat our homes for way cheaper than on the other side of the pond. We've subsidized our ability to ignore reality. Running out of cheap coal? Then just subsidize mountaintop removal in the tar sands pipeline. Or at least don't do the proper regulating and testing to find out what the harm is to the ecosystem and whether those mountains will actually grow back like we're told. Running out of intelligentsia? Ship them in from India. Running out of shrimp? Ship them from China. Running out of space to put our garbage? Ship it to people somewhere who would be happy to have our garbage. I mean, that garbage is probably filled with amazing like clothes that were worn once and iPods that were thrown out because the color fuchsia isn't popular anymore and perfectly edible, edible underwear that's only missing the crotch section. Sure, you'll have to dig through 500 DVD box sets of the Twilight movies before you get to the good stuff, but it'll be in there. In the big spaceship that is planet Earth, the United States is paying load of money to sit in first class so that we don't have to see the festering insanity going on back in coach. Most of this country is the Truman Show. Sure, things aren't great for a lot of people, but in many ways we are blissfully ignorant. We're mindfully innocent, mentally negligent, and unknowingly indigent. We pay to maintain our ignorance. We subsidize our closed eyes. But I'm thinking about getting a little work done, so at least there'll be like young, hot clothes guys. Where your eyes don't go, a part of you is hovering. It's a nightmare that you'll never be discovering. You're free to come and go, or talk like Curtis Blow. But there's a pair of eyes back of your head. Every jumble pile of person has a thinking heart that wonders what the part that is. The two arguments that Diana made, and, and I'm not going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to stop referring to her a, a, as a guest at this point because she's not here to defend herself, and I, 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 I really try not to 
jump on people when they're not here to defend themselves. So let me make this far more generic. The two main arguments that are made against our government providing subsidies to new industries. And in fact, Shano, if there's a copy of Rebooting the American Dream around here, could you toss it to me if you could if you can find a copy? Because I would like to share with my listeners, with our listeners, what Alexander Hamilton said. Thank you, sir. What Alexander Hamilton said about this. I, I'm not exaggerating. This is, you know, and, and it he could have just as easily have been talking about here we go. This is from Alexander Hamilton's 11-point plan for American manufacturers. Item number one, protecting duties. We call these tariffs, right? Item number two, prohibition of rival articles or duties equivalent to prohibitions. Obviously, you know, this is all about stopping the importation. Item number three, prohibitions of the exportation of the materials of manufacture. In other words, don't sell your raw materials overseas. Keep them. But here's where it gets interesting. Number four, pecuniary bounties. Pecuniary meaning, of course, money. And I'll read to you. This has been found one of the most efficacious means of encouraging manufacturers, and it is in some views the best, though it has not yet been practiced upon by the government of the United States, unless the allowance on the exportation of dried and pickled fish and salt meat could be considered as a bounty. And though it is less favorable favored by public opinion than some other modes, its advantages are these. A, so basically what he's talking about is, Government support for solar energy. Back then it was government support for a domestic shipbuilding industry. Um, I, literally. You know, we don't have a shipbuilding industry. Let's help, you know, let's give some money to a private company to start one. Number one, it is a species of encouragement more positive and direct than any other, and for that very reason has a more immediate tendency to stimulate and uphold new enterprises, increasing the chances of profit and diminishing the risks of loss in the first attempts. This is Alexander Hamilton, 1793. I'm reading it to you word for word, unedited. From my, uh, this, is, this is my book, Rebooting the American Dream. Number two, it avoids the inconvenience of a temporary augmentation of price. In other words, we could buy our green energy cheaper because it's being subsidized by the government. It avoids the inconvenience of a temporary augmentation of price, which is incident to some other modes, or it produces to a less degree, either by making no addition to the charges on arrival for an article, as in the case of protecting duties, or by making a smaller addition. In other words, this is another way of keeping our domestically produced stuff inexpensive for our consumers. The first happens when the fund for the bounty is derived from a different object, in other words, let's tax oil and use it to pay for solar power. Uh, the first happens when the fund for the bounty is derived from a different object, which may or may not increase the price of some other article according to the nature of that object. The second, when the fund is derived from the same or a similar object of foreign manufacture. A 1% duty on the foreign article converted into a bounty on the domestic. In other words, you're going to subsidize the domestic instead of taxing the foreign will have an equal effect of a duty of 2% exclusive of such a bounty, and the price of the foreign commodity is li liable to be raised, in the one case, in the proportion of 1%, in the other, that of 2%. Indeed, and, you know, it goes on and on, because, but it, this is written in the language of the 1700s, and so, in, in any case, 
Oh, and number 11, the facilitation of the transportation of commodities. This is another, I mean, it's government subsidies. So this is, Alexander Hamilton says we should have government subsidies. We ha, we did the, and, and George Washington agreed with him and put them into place in 1793. And we still have them today. There are industries, in a, in a big way, in the late 1890s, 1880s, 1890s, we started subsidizing the oil industry because we saw it as a vital industry. It's driving the Industrial Revolution. And, of course, John Rockefeller had his lobbyists. We're still subsidizing the oil industry. Well, maybe it was a good idea in the 1890s. I mean, it did build the, the, the biggest industrial economy in the history of the world. I don't think it's a good idea anymore. We should be using that money to subsidize something else. So anyhow, the two arguments that these folks make are, number one, fossil fuels are cheaper. Well, actually, no, they're not. If you consider the cost of the externalities, the cost of the cancers and the, and the asthmas and the, and the, the uh, global warming and the fracking fluids and the coal fly ash behind the power plants and the dead miners. Consider all those things. They're not cheaper. But the other argument that they make is government should not be in the business of, of booting industries, of starting things up. To which I would say, okay, December 6, 1957. United States, why, by the way, they say, oh, because Solyndra failed. That solar company that, that we were going to help out, it failed. December 6, 1957, the United States' first attempt to launch a satellite into orbit was also its first failure. Ten seconds after le or two seconds after le leaving the launch pad at Cape Canaveral, the rocket lost thrust, sank back down, blew up because of the fuel tanks. Well, that didn't work so well. Okay, let's give it up. We don't need to be a space power. Or April 4, 1968, Apollo 6. The first unmanned test of the Saturn V rocket. It blew up. Oh, well, that's, that's, that doesn't work. The early ARPANET. It didn't work. We couldn't get computers to talk to each other. It, they had to develop TCPIP in order to make it work because it didn't work because there were different computers and different operating systems. Should we have just said, ah, screw it. You know, the, the mail works. You want to send a paper to somebody else? Forget about ARPANET and then DARPANET and all that stuff. You know, the early Internet, which was all government. Use the post office. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The decision by the Postal Service to abolish Saturday delivery is a fool's errand. 
It won't make the Postal Service more competitive. Actually, it'll drive customers right into the arms of UPS and FedEx. And look at who it's going to hurt. The disabled person, the senior citizen, the veteran, all who are awaiting their monthly checks just to survive. If that check used to come on Saturdays and they could barely make it to the end of the month as it is... The extra two-day wait could be excruciating. In addition, getting rid of Saturday mail will cost 22,000 postal workers their jobs. Many of them are vets, 20% are African Americans, and postal workers constitute the biggest unionized workforce in the country. These aren't accidental facts. Nor is it an accident that the Postal Service is running a deficit since Republicans in Congress manufactured it. Back in 2006, Bush's Congress required the Postal Service to pre-fund 75 years' worth of future retiree health benefits over a 10-year period, explains Bernie Sanders. No other government agency, no other corporation in America, he added, is burdened with this mandate. As Ralph Nader points out, it requires the Postal Service actually to pre-fund retiree health benefits for some of its future employees who haven't even been born yet. The attack on the Postal Service is part and parcel of the Republican drive to crush unions and privatize everything. That's why it must be opposed. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. You've heard me before quote one of my mentors who told his students that news is what people want to keep hidden. Everything else is publicity. That's why two books are rattling the cages of powerful people who would rather you not read them. Here's the first one, Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age by Susan Crawford. Read it and you'll understand why we Americans are paying much more for Internet access than people in many other countries and getting much less in return. That, despite the fact that our very own academics and engineers working with our very own Defense Department invented the Internet in the first place. Back then, the U.S. was in the catbird seat, poised to lead the world down this astonishing new superhighway of information and innovation. Now, many other countries offer their citizens faster and cheaper access than we do. The faster high-speed access comes through fiber optic lines that transmit data in bursts of laser light. But many of us are still hooked up to broadband connections that squeeze digital information through copper wire. We're stuck with this old-fashioned technology because, as Susan Crawford explains, our government has allowed a few giant conglomerates to rig the rules, raise prices, and stifle competition, just like Standard Oil in the first Gilded Age a century ago. In those days, it was muckrakers like Ida Tarbell and Lincoln Steffens rattling the cages and calling for fair play. Today, it's independent thinkers like Susan Crawford. The big telecom industry wishes she would go away, but she's got a lot of people on her side. In fact, if you go to the White House Citizens Petition site, you'll see how fans of captive audience are calling on the president to name Susan Crawford as the next chair of the Federal Communications Commission. 
Prospect Magazine named her one of the top ten brains of the digital future. And Susan Crawford served for a time as a special assistant to President Obama for science, technology, and innovation. Right now, she teaches communications law at the Benjamin Cardoza School of Law here in New York City and is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Susan Crawford, welcome. Thank you so much. Captive audience? Yeah. Who's the captive? Us, all of us. What's happened is that uh, the, these enormous telecommunications companies, Comcast and Time Warner on the wired side, Verizon and AT&T on the wireless side, have divided up markets, put themselves in a position where they're subject to no competition and no oversight from any regulatory authority, and they're charging us a lot for Internet access and giving us second-class access. This is a lot like the electrification story from the beginning of the 20th century. Initially, electricity was viewed as a luxury. So when FDR came in, 90% of farmers didn't have electricity in America. At the same time, the kids in New York City were playing with electric toys. And FDR understood how important it was for people all over America to have the dignity and self-respect and sort of cultural and social and economic connection of an electrical outlet in their home. So he made sure to take on the special interests that were controlling electricity then, who had divided up markets and consolidated just the way Internet guys have today. He made sure that we made this something that every American had. But we are a long way from FDR, the New Deal, and, and those early attitudes toward industry. What makes you think that's relevant now when you come to the Internet? You know, this is an issue about which people have a lot of passion because it touches them in their daily lives. The Wall Street Journal on the front page had an article about kids needing to go to McDonald's to do their homework because they don't have an Internet connection at home. Parents around the country know that their kids can't get an adequate education without Internet access. You can't apply for a job these days without going online. You can't get access to government benefits adequately. You can't start a business. This feels to 300 million Americans like a utility, like something that's just essential for life. And the issue of how it's controlled and how expensive it is and how few Americans actually sign up for it is not really on the radar screen. You describe this, frankly, as a, as a, as a crisis in communication with similarity, you say, to the banking crisis and global warming. What makes it a crisis? It's a crisis for us because we're not quite aware of the rest of the world. Americans tend to think of themselves as just exceptional. And we're well, we did invent the Internet, didn't we? We did, but that was Generation 1. Generation 2, we're being left far behind. And so all the new things that are going on in the world, America won't be part of that unless we are able to communicate. So there's a darkness descending because of this expensive and relatively slow Internet access in America. We're also leaving behind a third of Americans. A third you of call us. it the, and here you call it the digital divide. Describe that to me. Well, here's the problem. For 19 million Americans, many in rural areas, you can't get access to a high-speed connection at any price. It's just not there. For a third of Americans, they don't subscribe, often because it's too expensive. So the rich are getting gouged. The poor are very often left out. And this means that we're creating, yet again, two Americas and deepening inequality through this communications inequality. So is this why, according to numbers released by the Department of Commerce, only four out of ten households with annual 
household incomes below $25,000 reported having wired Internet access at home compared with 93% of households with incomes exceeding $100,000. These companies are not providing cheap enough access to the poor folks in this country? These are good American companies. Their profit yeah. motives, though, don't line up with our social needs to make sure that everybody gets access. They're not in the business of making sure that everybody has reasonably priced Internet access. That's how a utility functions. Mm. That's the way we need to treat this commodity. They're in the business right now of finding rich neighborhoods and harvesting, just making more and more money from the same number of people. They're doing really well at that. Comcast is now a $100 billion company. They're bigger than uh, McDonald's. They're bigger than Home Depot. But they're not providing this deep social need of con connection uh, that uh, every other country is taking seriously. And, and you make the point that the United States itself is beginning to experience this digital divide in the world. It's fair to say that the U.S. at the best is in the middle of the pack when it comes to both the speed and cost of high-speed Internet access connections. So in Hong Kong right now, you can get a 500 megabit symmetric connection that's unimaginably fast from our standpoint for about 25 bucks a month. For in Seoul, for $30, you get three choices of different providers of fiber in your apartment. And they, they come in and install in a day because competition is so fierce. In New York City, there's only one choice, and it's 200 bucks a month for a similar service. And you can't get that kind of fiber connection outside of New York City in many parts of the country. Verizon's only serving about 10% of Americans. So let's talk about the wireless side for a moment, you know, the separate marketplace that people use for mobility. In Europe, you can get unlimited texting and voice calls and data for about $30 a month. Similar service from Verizon costs $90 a month. That's a huge difference. Why is there such a disparity there. The difference in all of these areas is competition and government policy. It's not magical. Without the intervention of the government, there's no reason for these guys to charge us anything reasonable. So briefly describe the need. All Americans need a fast, cheap connection to the Internet. And the problem? A few companies control access in America, and it's not in their interest to bring that fast, cheap access to us all. And the solution? The solution is for people to care about this issue, ask hard questions at every debate, make sure you elect people who will act, and give your mayor air cover so that he or she can act to make sure that your city has this fast competitive access. The book is Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the Gilded Age. Susan Crawford, I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for being with me. Thank you so much. What? we've got here is failure to communicate some men you just can't reach so you get what we had here last week which is the way he wants it well he gets it. i don't like it Look at your women crying Look at your young men dying The way they've always done before
So back in the day when um, you couldn't quite buy a politician, <laughs> first of all, there were no billionaires in America. In fact, there were no millionaires in the United States. The first millionaire came along in the 1790s in today's dollars. And a million ain't that much in today's dollars. Right? I mean, it's people who are millionaires just, you know, based on the value of their homes and whatnot, but uh, particularly in some of our big cities. But the point is that uh, Mr. Jefferson, this is this is Alexander Hamilton. Now, today's President's Day. I realize Hamilton was never a president, but uh, he certainly was influential. The old cliche, and it's absolutely true, is that we all run around quoting Jefferson, but we live in Hamilton's country. That Hamilton had this vision for America, and Hamilton was the Secretary of the Treasury, Jefferson was the Secretary of State in the George Washington administration. Washington being the fourth president of the United States, the first to operate under the Constitution. So, arguably the first of the new United States. And Hamilton had this idea of this, this uh, you know, empire, basically, this dynastic manufacturing-based empire that uh, used manufacturing and finance to build a great nation. And Jefferson thought that that was a dangerous road for us to go down. Now, he changed his mind once he became president in 1800, but this was back four years earlier, six years earlier, eight years earlier, and as uh, well seven years when, when, this, when these correspondences happened, when he and Hamilton were such enemies in the cabinet. And I just, I just have to share some of the. I spent a, probably most of Saturday, four or five hours Saturday, reading these letters of Alexander Hamilton's uh, to various people. I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a book right now, and I was looking for stuff that had to do with uh, debt and trade. And but but <laughs> I found these incredible little pieces. Uh, Hamilton is writing, this is a, uh, a letter to Colonel Edward Carrington, who was a personal friend of Hamilton's. Uh, it's dated May 26, 1792. So this was the second year, let's see, the George Washington administration. This was the third year. No, no. Well, whatever. Anyhow, 1792. And he says, uh, Mr. Jefferson, with very little reserve, manifests his dislike of the funding system generally, calling into question the expediency of funding a debt at all. Jefferson would have been what today we call a modern monetary theorist. Some expressions, back to Hamilton, some expressions which he has dropped in my presence, parenthesis, sometimes without sufficient attention to delicacy, close parenthesis, will not permit me to doubt on this point representations which I have had from various respectable quarters. In other words, Jefferson's trash-talking him not only to himself, but to other people. He says, in various conversations with foreigners as well as citizens, he has thrown censure on my principles of government and on my measures of administration. He did it in a style and manner which I felt as partaking of asperity and ill humor toward me. When any turn of things in the community has threatened either odium or embarrassment to me, he has not been able to suppress the satisfaction which it gave him. Hamilton's really PO'd with Jefferson because, you know, they, were, they, were, they had this battle. And it was a battle, by the way, that Hamilton ultimately won. He says, in respect to foreign politics, 
the views of these gentlemen. Now he's talking about uh, Hamilton, or excuse me, Jefferson and his protege, James Madison. In respect to foreign politics, the, who is also in the cabinet. Uh, he says, in respect to, the, to foreign politics, the views of these gentlemen are, in my judgment, equally unsound and dangerous. They have a womanish attachment to France and a womanish resentment against Great Britain. See, Hamilton himself did not have a problem with stooping to slapping him around. Uh, he says, Mr. Jefferson in France saw government only in the side of its abuses. He drank freely of the French philosophy and religion, science, and politics. He came from France in the moment of a fermentation. He's talking about leading up to the French Revolution, which he had a share in exciting. And he came here probably with too partial an idea of his own powers. He came electrified with attachment to France. And then he, taught, then, he, then he shifts to Mr. Madison, who he's also PO'd with. He says, Mr. Madison had always entertained an exalted opinion of the talents, knowledge, and virtues of Mr. Jefferson. The sentiment was probably reciprocal. A close correspondence subsisted between them during the time of Mr. Jefferson's absence from the country. A close intimacy arose upon his return. Mr. Jefferson was indiscreetly open in his approbation of Mr. Madison's principles. I say indiscreetly because a gentleman in the administration... Now, he's talking... See, these guys, they're all in the cabinet. He says, I say indiscreetly because a gentleman in the administration in one department ought not to have taken sides against another in another department. The course of this business begot some degree of ill humor in Mr. Jefferson. I was aware of a systematic opposition to me on the part of these gentlemen. My subversion, I am now satisfied, has been long an object with them. I have feelings of personal mortification. So what was it he was mortified about? Well, it had to do with, in this case, this particular rant. Uh, just a few months later, August 18, 1792, he wrote a letter to George Washington about this. And it was about the national debt. And it starts out, objection one. And so he's quoting his opponents. The public debt is greater than we can possibly pay before other costs, causes of adding to it will occur. And this has been artificially created by adding together the whole amount of the debtor and creditor sides of the accounts. Answer. The public debt was produced by the late war. Whether it is greater than can be paid before new causes of adding to it will occur is a problem incapable of being solved but by experience. Now, I will explain what Hamilton was talking about, why the debt was a big deal at the founding of this country, why, frankly, I think it's not a big deal right now. In fact, Hamilton at that time, he said, the debt of the United States compared with its present and growing abilities is really a very light one. Hmm. It's a little more than 15 million pounds sterling, about the annual expenditure of Great Britain. In other words, the debt of the United States was equal to the entire GT, GDP of Great Britain, which was massively larger than the United States. And Hamilton says, oh, that's not so much debt. We can handle that. Although I've never said it, I know that I'm indebted. But giving all my love at once would trust me. And though it's quite a task to, it's only right to ask you. To take my eye on you to show you trust me. I owe you all of my affection. I owe you all of my protection. And it's due to I owe you. 
is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. I read a book recently entitled Four Horsemen, The Survival Manual. Yes, I read a book. I know it's antiquated, but my Twitter machine was broken and I had no choice, so stop judging me. In it, the authors talk about a 1976 essay by Sir John Glubb, in which he details the stages of empires and the signs that an empire is collapsing. The book argues that Western civilization is now in the final stage, the age of decadence. Symptom 1. Unsustainable behavior. I don't think we exhibit this at all. I realize that it takes the amount of three bottles of water to produce one bottle of water and, and that a McDonald's hamburger costs like $60 to produce and $1 to purchase. But math is for And in my head, 60 minus 1 equals boring, so go f*** yourself. Look, a cheap printer at Walmart costs like $30 and comes with an ink cartridge, but a new ink cartridge costs $35. So when the cartridge runs out, I throw away the printer, buy a new one, and save $5. Some say that's bad for Mother Earth, but I say, don't you think that Mother Earth would want us to be smart if she were still with us? God rest her soul. Symptom 2. An immensely wealthy elite and massive disparity between the rich and poor. Look. I understand that the top 10% possess 80% of all financial assets, but they are our betters, and they worked hard for, for that money, and, 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 and we should admire them. Symptom 3. Instead of angering the masses, the repulsively wealthy are admired. I don't... I don't do that. I don't... We don't do that. But I would have... Steve Jobs. I w I'm not gay, but I, I, w I would have done that. Symptom four. Cheap credit. I'm sorry, I'm still thinking about Steve. Steve! Five. Exorbitant consumption. So I looked up this word in the dictionary, and it said tuberculosis of the lungs. We don't have that. Symptom six. People convinced that a dizzying amount of consumption and materialism will make them content. I don't think Western civilization has a problem here, because we think we need this stuff, and if you think you need it, then you can get lots of cool I have a 22-inch flat-screen TV for my 52-inch flat-screen TV. I leave it on to keep the bigger one company when I'm not home. 7. Debasement of Currency now, as I understand it, that's when ocean currents flood your basement, and I have to admit, we have a, we have a bit of an issue with that. Eight, overextended military. Overextended? We have the best warriors in the world. We have 900 military bases around the globe and more drones in the sky than birds. Overextended my ass. Symptom nine, debauchery. I mean, you call it debauchery, but I call it with a donut and then eating it recycling. And symptom number 10, the economy presents distractions from what's really going on. This is often called bread and circuses and includes gladiatorial spectacles. Oh, no, you didn't. Look, you can, you can tear apart my icing-filled bear claw <laughs> all you want, but I will not stand here while you insult ultimate fighting and football. Watching beastly men beat the living out of each other for sport is one of the few pleasures I have left. This past Super Bowl was the most watched in history. So what does that say for your idea that we only like circuses? Besides, I don't only watch sports. I watch Top Chef and Chopped and 16 and Pregnant with Another Idiot and... and Oh, oh wait, there's, there's one more thing on here. It says, during the final years of the Roman, Ottoman, and Spanish empires, they made celebrities out of their chefs.
Well, I don't think I don't think Jamie Oliver and Wolfgang Puck are gonna like that you're saying that about them. And honestly, what what do you want us to do? We have all this money laying around. Why not fix up a little dolphin fin foie gras? Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast, where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things, like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at Lee Camp. .net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. Okay, so I was watching this week with George Snuffleupagus, and you know, we've, we've said it on this show a million times, that the problem with Medicare isn't Medicare, and that the problem with Medicare is the problem with health care. Our health care in America is twice as expensive as it is in the rest of the world, and that's because it's run privately for profit. People do health care for profit in America. The health corporations, big pharma, health insurance, they bought our government. And now the guy, they have a, they have an oligopoly, a monopoly, pretty much, right? They can do whatever they want. And there, we just have a middleman in the middle of our healthcare system for no reason. That some people say is what drives our costs up by as much as 30%. Okay. So there's this guy named Stephen Brill, who's a conservative, by the way, who wrote, I, I've got to say one of the, probably the best article on healthcare ever. It's in Time Magazine from last week. So here he is, Stephen Brill. He's a conservative. He's not allergic to facts and accurate information. And he, he wrote that article and he, and he detailed Everything that's wrong with our healthcare system and why we have to pay too much. And, uh, well, here he is on Sunday on this week's, uh, George Nuffleupagus, and let's just listen to a little bit. Uh, Medicare, um, as I point out in the article, is uh, very efficient at most things. It buys healthcare really efficiently, uh, which is a great irony because it's supposed to be, you know, the big government uh, bureaucracy. Where Medicare is not efficient is where Congress, because of lobbyists, have handcuffed Medicare. Uh, Medicare can't negotiate what it pays for, for for any kind of drugs. It can't negotiate what it pays uh, for wheelchairs or diabetes or uh, testing equipment. And if Congress took those handcuffs off of Medicare, you could get about um, half of the spending cuts that uh, we're sitting around here talking about. Hey, I say thanks. Hey, thanks a lot, Dudley Do-Right, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> so let's get back to how many people's benefits we can cut, okay? Because <laughs> that's never going to happen. Next. George Nuffleupagus, uh, he he doesn't know if what this guy's saying is true or not, apparently because he didn't know this guy was going to come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> apparently he didn't know that that guy who wrote this article, who said all this stuff in the article, was going to come on his show, even though it's his show, and say this stuff. So he turns to this guy, Steve Ratner, who's from the White House. He's an American financier who served as the lead, uh, lead auto advisor at the car czar. He was the car czar. He also spent two decades as an investment banker at Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley... <laughs> mm. oh, that's very bad. Very bad. So uh, you're basic 99 percenter. Yes. 
So, so he and he's a big. We got to cut Medicare. He's a. There's just no other way around it. And here's what he says to what that guy just said. Sure. You could get a fair amount. And look, if, if Medicare were simply able to uh, get the same prices for prescription drugs that Medicaid gets, it would save $120 billion over 10 years. So that's so he just said that if Medicare was allowed to negotiate like Medicaid is, they would save $120 billion over 10 years. That's a lot of money. Am I wrong about that's that? That's a lot of money. Hang on. So let's, let's hear whatever, what else Steve Ratner has to say. But there's a fundamental point here, uh, Stephen. I thought your piece was great, and I think your points are right, but I also don't want people to be confused. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want people to be confused. And, uh, by, you know, facts. Uh, and by confused, he means realize that we're about to get screwed over. <laughs> I don't want people to be confused. I want them to be wholly ignorant. <laughs> yes, yes. So here he's got a little bit more. Don't be confused. I don't believe that we can cut our way, change the pricing, do all the things you're talking about and still save Medicare. The average person who is at Medicare retirement age has paid in something like... So here's this guy who is now the leading expert on what's wrong with our healthcare system, right? This, <laughs> the guy who wrote the article in Time Magazine. And here's this guy who's, uh, I don't know, the, uh, uh, an equity financer, this yeah. guy, Steve, uh -huh. and he's telling him, yeah, you're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking. We still can't. That's not going to save Medicare. He's you. You don't know what you're talking about. That's Steve Ratner. He wants to make us make sure that uh, the truth doesn't get in the way of any of his BS. Right. So <laughs> hang on. But, but there's a fundamental point here, uh, Stephen. I thought your piece was great, and I think your points are right. But I also don't want people to be confused. I don't believe that we can cut our way, change the pricing, do all the things you're talking about, and still save Medicare. The average person who is at Medicare retirement age has paid in something like $122,000 into the system. They will get back $387,000 of benefits. That's three times. You're not going to reduce that 387 by hospital cuts and this and that. We have to still have fundamental Medicare reforms to make those numbers. Yeah, yeah. Hey, maybe Medicare has been handcuffed, and maybe that's why it costs so much. But I didn't come on the show to have my goddamn mind changed. I'll tell you that. That's not what I'm doing. I don't care about all your facts that debunk everything I think. And you know what? We can, we can, so, we can so, save a lot of money if we uh, let people die. <laughs> yes. What is his? So we have to cut the health care. Even said, you're right. Your points are right. But said, let me just make this point. But let me. But then screw what, that. Well, we, you know, he's saying we pay, we pay in one and we get three back. Yeah. So what? You know. First I mean, of all. So what? Uh, this is a good thing. I wonder if you put a dollar into a savings account. And then when you turn 65, you took it out, would there be more than $3 in there? Oh. Do things, wait, do, do the, does the value of things increase over time? Oh. Does the government have the ability to invest money ah. to issue uh, Very well put, Ben. That's very, I didn't even think about that. Yes. It's not like you're putting in a dollar today and taking out three tomorrow. So they act like people when they go on Medicare who's paid into Medicare their whole life. And when they get sick now and they're a senior citizen, they go, well, they are, they're getting more benefits than they actually paid for. Someone else is paying for that. If we're only paying in a third, if we're getting back two-thirds of what we're paying in, where's those two-thirds coming from? Well, what they're suggesting is is that we uh, it, it's, it's a Ponzi scheme at this point where we're paying for them. Oh, is that what they're saying? <laughs> yeah, and to a degree it's true, but it, it's true largely because Congress screwed up. So here, here, so here's my problem with this whole section, what just happened, right? So they, they get this expert on who just wrote the seminal article on healthcare and what's wrong with it in Time magazine. He lays out the big problem. It's the big money lobbyists that have gotten lawmakers to actually pass laws that don't allow Medicare to negotiate for stuff that has to pay for, like drugs, hospital stay, wheelchairs. They can't read, they can't. Now, you know what I, it, it uh, excuse me, but wouldn't, 
um, allowing them to make those negotiations, uh, wouldn't that solve or, 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 or be a path to solving what the other guy was talking about, which is how you, you know, you pay in a hundred grand and three hundred yeah. grand. Right. To, yes. So that, that wouldn't that like, uh, isn't it common sense to think that that would be a way to, to deal with that? Unfortunately, there's just no way to know. There's just no way to know. There's no such thing as math, and so it just can't be determined. So here, Frank, I mean, you know, can I just yeah. a- ask one thing? It just kind of sounds like this, and you guys seem very smart, that we should just <laughs> kill dead p- old people. Yes, <laughs> kill old well, people. Yeah, yeah, if you get rid of Medicare and uh, and old people just show up at the emergency room, who pays for that? Who, nobody. Well, no, nobody had same to get people. Old. <laughs> We're paying, uh, you know. Old, if, we, if we killed old people... We could save a lot of money and yes. make the world a lot less smelly. <laughs> right? And we could use all those empty larks so, uh, uh, and put, <laughs> make amusement parks and bumper cars out of them. Yes. So, so Frank, think about, that. think about that for a minute. right? So this guy lays out the problem. He says the problem is that we're paying way more for our health care because of law- lobbyists have controlled our government, and now Medicare isn't allowed to negotiate. And if they were, for instance, just on pharmaceuticals, it would save a Hundred and twenty billion dollars over ten years. By the way, the other guy said it would be even more than that, right? Yes, it did. And so, so f- the point gets made, and what doesn't happen is what was really interesting to me. What didn't happen is that they didn't all start screaming at the top of their lungs about how horrible this is and how vow and vowing to make sure this kind of gross crony capitalism that rips off the taxpayers at the expense of corporations has got to stop. Nobody said that. Nobody got upset. Not even for a second. Well, they're pulling the, the classic right-wing uh, maneuver of if your if your suggestion doesn't completely solve a problem, yes. you got to throw it out. Yes. Uh. Like listen, you know, yeah, yeah, that would save $120 billion, but we need $130 billion. So that doesn't work. So sorry. Adios. What yes. else you got? Uh, I know what we have. We have faith. <laughs> and by the way, not for nothing, but but if Medicare could, could negotiate, it means prices across the board would go down. Yes. It means it would have the same cost control effect that the post office has on shipping. Yes. So we wouldn't have to kill old people? Right. So, it, what, but we what, could. What's crazy about that is that they nobody even disputed what he said. Really, they all said, "Yeah, that's happening," and they accepted it. And then they quickly got back to the idea that we have to cut healthcare services for the elderly, no matter how much corruption you get rid of, because we just can't afford healthcare for our old people. That's we just can't do it in America. All right, so there's more. So, uh, so the fact-based guy. He comes back with some facts, and he seems to blow a mountain-sized hole in the argument of people who want to cut Medicare, and let's listen to it. Well, if you put Medicare in the context of the larger health care system, and this is something that everybody at this table is going to think uh, that I should go to a mental hospital when I get finished saying this, um, the government and all of us would actually save money if you lowered, I said lowered, the age for Medicare. So... So he's saying, since Medicare is a more efficient healthcare delivery system, that if everybody, if we lowered the age of Medicare and let more people on it, we would actually save money as a country. That's what he's saying. And that was the moment that that uh, the other guy took out a gun and shot him. <laughs> so he, he, so this is an, these are two amazing points this guy just made. Let's hear how how it gets. Uh, if the Medicare age was sixty instead of sixty-five, the economy and the taxpayers 
would actually save money in Georgia. Please don't look at me like that. No, you're potentially right. And, and part of the argument... You're potentially right. This is what Steve, again, the, 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 the equity capital guy... Uh, says you're potentially right. But this will never happen. No, this is serious. You're, 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 you're potentially right. And, and part of the argument about raising the Medicare age to 67 is you're, is you're taking people out of the Medicare system. Right. And, and, and you're. Yes, yes. If you lower the Medicare age to 60, you'd save a ton of money. But, uh, hey, this isn't Europe. So save your breath. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to happen. Yeah. That, so this guy makes a lot of sense. This guy, Stephen Brill, if you lower And, uh, I'm going to miss that guy. <laughs> I'm going to really when they kill them. Yes, they're not going to be here. So if we lowered the Medicare age, we'd save billions, which would only make us lower the age again. And where does that lead us? Right. Pretty soon, everyone will have reasonably priced health care. Lock that guy up. <laughs> Lock that guy up. So he tries to push back more. This smart guy with the facts. Medicare age to 67 is you're is you're taking people out of the Medicare. Right. System, and, and, and you're. Oh, what you'd be doing is you'd be putting the most efficient player, which is Medicare. A Medicare spends, mm -hmm. you know, 80 or 90 cents to process a claim, and the health insurance companies spend 18 or 20 or 25 dollars to process a claim. Uh, the health insurance companies. Well, that's pretty stunning. That that is yeah. that statistic. Yeah, it is. But you know, a couple of cents versus eighteen dollars. Do we know which is more or less? I mean, could you imagine if it was reversed? Could you imagine if private health care insurance companies charged eighty cents to process a claim and Medicare charged eighteen dollars? Imagine if it was the reversed. How up? Well, you don't have to imagine that because the way it's portrayed in the media, that is the reverse. That is how it's portrayed. Every yes, every exactly. article. You read in every paper on every TV show, it's that Medicare is crazy, out of control costs, and if only we could just let private people take care of it, uh, all of our, our health costs would come down. If you lowered the age, you would put more people into the bucket of much more efficient health care. And the worst part about it is that uh, the uh, reforms that we have now uh, with uh, the president's plan are actually going to raise the cost because all the people who are 60 or 62 or 63 who can't afford the the uh, premiums that they're going to have now are going to be subsidized by the tax. Well, that becomes an argument. So he's saying that the people who are 62, 63, 60 who can't afford the private health insurance they're going to get subsidized by the government anyway. So why not put everybody on Medicare and it's going to save everybody money? This is, so it sounds, this is, it sounds obvious that this is the right thing to do and that should be the end of the discussion, right? And we should all start working on a plan to expand Medicare for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's obvious that that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. Uh oh, wait a minute. That's not what's going to happen. That is one argument. Here's an argument against that <laughs> kind of reform. So it's George Will. So get rid, get your buckets oh, no, to fill right. full of BS, ladies and gentlemen. That it's not fact based. It's just coming from his gut. He's very much like George W. And here we go. All the big numbers, billions and trillions. Twelve cents is the most important number. Twelve cents is the portion of every health care dollar paid by the person receiving the health care. Okay, that's a completely made up number. That's not true. Someone else is paying the rest. It was forty-seven. I like how he says someone else is paying the rest. Yeah. What about all the people ago. that uh, pay out of pocket? They don't pay twelve cents. I, they pay a yeah. dollar for every dollar. It's not, but that's just that's not a true stat. No, somebody else is paying the rest that's, of that dollar. That's indeed. not a true stat, Steve. That's, mm -hmm. that's, he's making that up. It's incorrect. Mm -hmm. As usual, George Will has his own mm -hmm. set of numbers <laughs> that don't correlate mm -hmm. with true with reality. They fit into his own reality. Right. Jack Kennedy was president. Now, let me ask the five of you a question. Okay, so here comes the big question. Ready? 
You go to the doctor and he or she says, I want to give you the following test. How many of you five say, how much is that going to cost? <laughs> uh, say, give me two. <laughs> yes, that's the what? problem with health care and health insurance is that uh, the people who are getting the health care never have to worry about how much it costs. Mm. That's <laughs> except for the 50 million people who don't have health care <laughs> attached to their jobs or don't have jobs or got laid off and lost their health care. Other than that, we're spoiled rotten in America. <laughs> oh, and what about the insurance company who won't approve it? and make you go round and round for a test that your doctor told you that you need. So here is George Will Roberts saying that the problem, he's identified the culprit, even though this guy just pointed out what the real problem is with our health care system, he, George Will has pointed out that the culprit is the sick person in the emergency room who won't do any comparison shopping after his appendix bursts <laughs> in the middle of a gallbladder attack. <laughs> yeah, after that, he should he probably smacked his head on the windshield. That's when he's supposed to start doing some comparison <laughs> shopping for CAT scans. Go on Yelp. Yeah, why don't you... Well, what if, you know what, I have to... Um... After hearing George Will, I'm sorry, I have to go check and see if my insurance covers projectile vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> so George Will is saying, he's pretending that the problem is that we have insurance pay our bills. That's the problem. Because we have insurance. Yeah. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and so we don't care about the costs. And we don't shop around. Mm -hmm. And so the price for health care is higher because we have insurance. Mm -hmm. That's George Will's big yeah. theory. His remedy for our twice as expensive as the rest of the world healthcare system is for sick people to stop shopping around for treatment once they become sick. This is George Will's brilliant idea. And somewhere, like as if somewhere out there, there's a hospital that charges reasonable rates. Yeah. Just not the one near your house. There's nothing to do here. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. I'm putting a clock on it. Here comes Financial Armageddon. We're on day one. Why are we on day one? This is the first day uh, reporting the story. <laughs> now, it's not in reality, but since this is the first time we're telling you about it, I'm calling it day one. We'll keep track going forward. Here's what I have to say. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Now, look, I've said it before. Uh, you, you know, the size of the derivatives market is hilarious. It's, it, there's different reports on it. But the last one says that it is $639 trillion. That number is so large, it's comical, right? I believe it's 10 times the size of the entire world economy. Okay, it's also called a swaps market. So there's this giant swaps market where they're taking insane risk with our money. And uh, now, Dodd-Frank bill was supposed to regulate that. And I mean, it did this much regulation, a scintilla of regulation. But the banks say, oh, you know what? It's okay. We don't even have to follow that scintilla of regulation. Why? 
oh, did we call this a swaps market? We meant futures market. That's not part of your regulation at all. So futures, yes, that's what it is. So let me begin to explain that trick to you. Elzar David Melendez explains, futures traders are required to set aside less collateral on their trades and incentive to place larger bets. So do you understand that? They're moving to the futures market because they can put down less collateral and make larger bets. Now, if you put down less money and you make bigger bets, guess what happens? Because if you make a tiny little error, you don't have the money to back it up. That's how we got into the mess in 2008. They're putting that on steroids. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> Under the new regulatory regime, all but a few of the so-called block trades must be disclosed to other market participants, enabling regulators to monitor the scope of the regulation. Now, this is what they're trying to get rid of. So they're saying, now, even those tiny little trades will not be monitored. Oh, great. That won't cause trouble at all either. Continuing. By contrast, which future trades must be disclosed and which can be kept private are generally left to be determined by the private companies that operate the exchanges. <laughs> Good night, Irene. Don't worry, the banks will regulate themselves and those exchanges that get all of their money from those banks will, I'm sure, will be very tough in regulating them. In other words, good night, Irene, there ain't gonna be no regulation, okay? So, furthermore, under Dodd-Frank, losses on swaps trades are limited to parties that engage in that trade. But in the futures market, the consequences of an ill-fated bet can spill out to myriad players from the brokers who engineer the positions to the clearinghouses that execute the trades. You understand that part? So before, if party A and party B do a deal, it goes bad and one of them gets screwed real bad. Now, it's broader. So more banks suffer because of that trade. The clearinghouses suffer because of that trade. So when there is an explosion, it knocks more people out. And then those knock more people out. And then financial Armageddon. I'm not playing and I'm not overstating it. Remember, it's a $639 trillion market. Okay, continuing. James Cauley, CEO of Javelin Capital Markets, so it's not just us. This guy says, quote, as the market gravitates to cheaper platform, and it's cheaper because it's unsafe, that creates risk for everyone. So here's the CEO of a guy who's running a company in this field saying, don't do it. Don't do it, it's a really bad idea, and it's going to blow up on all of us. They're like, yeah, 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 step aside, step aside. All right, here's one more. George Harrington from Bloomberg. A margining regime that favors financial futures over financial swaps runs the risk of increasing systemic risk. By systemic risk, they mean risk that applies to the entire system. One thing goes down, it's a bunch of dominoes, and they all go down. Here are people inside Bloomberg, inside Javelin Capital Markets, saying, don't do it! The swaps market was a disaster to begin with. That caused the 2008 crash. Now we're going to get something even riskier that affects even a bigger portion of the markets. Tick, 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 tick. And let me tell you guys who's going to bring this disaster to you. It's a group called the CME Group. The, why are they so important? They're setting up the exchanges where they do not regulate the banks, and the regulates, get, and they get to do all this trading, and this is where it's going to blow up. 
Now you can look back later after it blows up to this video. Don't listen to any of the other nonsense actually. The right wing will blame it on the government later. They'll blame it on this, they'll blame it on that. I'm telling you ahead of time. It's going to happen and it's going to happen at the CME group. What do they run? They run the Chicago Merc Mercantile Exchange and the Intercontinental Exchange, which is probably the riskiest place on earth. Anything that comes out of the Intercontinental Exchange, watch out, okay? And by the way, here's something fun. They're about to buy the New York Stock Exchange. So if you think things were risky before, wait till you get a load of them afterwards. Tick, 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 tick. We're on day one. I don't know when it'll blow up. I don't know if it'll be two months, two years. I don't know how long they can keep it together with duct tape. But I guarantee you this. If you take this amount of risk with this amount of money, it will bring down the entire global financial system. That sounds harsh, but it isn't. They're all connected. There's no way around it. It's a pure matter of logic. Colin from Cleveland again, just listening to uh, <clears throat> Wade's rebuttal about the drones, and I understand a lot of his points. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I understand his point of view. That being said, Wayne said a very incorrect statement about sarcastically talking about American foreign policy being evil about the time that we helped those Afghanis get rid of the Soviets. If Wayne had actually looked into it deeper, he would have found that the CIA drew the Soviets into Afghanistan to deliberately give them their Vietnam to break the Cold War. That's not what was taught to us as American children or put on the American news. I understand why he doesn't realize this, because he hasn't gone further on his own to investigate this. He's taking what the media for a couple decades now has told us at face value. The sooner everyone realizes that Main me mainstream media lies. Lies to the left, lies to the right. All they care about is profits and market share. Wade, again, I mean, I understand some of your points, but before you feel wholeheartedly sure about your stances, do a little research about why you feel the way you do. This is what I myself do. This is what I encourage everyone to do, is to not just take one or two sources for gospel. And <laughs> it's just very frustrating because he's, Wade is not a stupid person at all. He's just misinformed in this one example, and this is where he has made a strong opinion about something that, he, you know, no one, unless you look deeper, would even know you're being lied to about. So again, Jay, I love the show, and Wade, please keep calling in. Thank you. Hi, this is Denny. I was from Indiana. I was calling to respond to Wade and his comment that they've always hated us, and you know there was plenty of people signing up to terrorists before we started drone attacking. And he's not wrong. We have been. But if you look at the history, like, for example, I've been reading the untold history of the United States, and it's talking about, at this point, it's talking about, right after World War II and the 
way we disputed oil in Iran between whether Britain should have control of it or whether Russians should have control of it. The only people who never got brought up as possibly having control of the, over the oil in Iran, the Iranians. And it was the same in all the other Middle Eastern countries, too. And then we throw military bases up all over to ensure that we have access to their oil. Maybe the first step is we deal with that problem. Quit treating them like they don't matter. If we started actually treating them as our political equals rather than inferiors, maybe we'd have a chance of creating some peace there. Obviously, there's plenty more to complain about with to criticize what Wade had to say, but I think everybody else can do that. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye. Hey, Jay. What's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. I was calling. I really appreciate what the guy from Vancouver said on today's podcast about the euphemisms and calling things what they are. And just to, to respond briefly to what Wade said, and you know, this is just something that I wish more conservatives, because you know, we we tend to think of conservatives and Christianity as kind of going hand in hand in this country, not exclusively, but a lot. And um, I find this idea that somehow an American life is worth more than another human being on the face of the earth. It's just, it's, it's beside, I, I just, I don't understand that logic at all. That how those lives of those innocent women and children and men are more valuable than ours. And then when we do have to do the hard thing, like send in our troops to go take care of a perceived threat or a real threat in the United States, that's a sacrifice we're all willing to make to protect ours. And just because we have an easy, convenient way of eradicating other people, and there might be some collateral damage, is okay. It's, it's just, it's just beyond me. And that quote you used at the end, it's JFK, if I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and we do do these things because they are hard, or we should, anyway. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and I want to address the general question of Obama, for instance, in the drone kill list thing, knowing stuff that we don't know. There's that quote that's often quoted by our right-wing friends that always says, you know, the, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. I think that tree also requires sunshine. And to have a government in which we don't really know why our president is always putting Social Security on the chopping block or why he is killing American citizens or why they're setting up kangaroo courts or why they have to wiretap every U.S. citizen. I think just the very fact that we don't know those things, it hamstrings our ability to vote, to evaluate the sitting elected officials. It hamstrings the people we actually do elect because many of them don't even get this information. So I think that the argument that he knows something we don't, there should be literally a very few, a very small handful of things that the President of the United States knows that his population does not know. Otherwise, uh, you know, democracy just can't work. And so that general uh, shade that they put over that tree of liberty is a terrible thing, and I don't think we should ever make that an excuse that because they keep the justification even for their drone, uh, their targeted kill list program, secret, that should be somehow a justification. That should be a, considered a, an, an offense in and of itself. Thank you. Have a nice day. Hi, Jay. Chuck in Salt Lake City. I just listened to uh, your most recent show, and I wanted to call 
and say thanks for having two very, very contradictory liberal messages. And I hope, uh, I hope I'm not the only one who saw a little bit of hypocrisy when Jen Cuker is explaining that Jamie Foxx was just telling a joke. And then we got to hear Blacking It Up complain that The Onion wasn't just telling a joke. Thanks a lot for that, Jay. Like your honesty. Hi, Jay. Scott in Philadelphia. Um, you know, I really honestly appreciate that you want to continue having this conversation about race and America and race relations in America and bigotry in America. But I'm a little disturbed at the direction it's going. Um, for clarity, I'd like to say that uh, I am the descendant of Scottish coal miners who have always been either uh, indentured servants or peasants. Um, my father was the first truly free person anywhere in my ancestry. My grandfather worked in the coal mines in West Virginia until he died as a basically a bonded servant. So I can say legitimately that my first generation of all of my ancestors to be free was my father and his sister who were the first ancestors I ever had that got to go to high school. It's important to appreciate that when you're discussing race in America, that uh, first of all, there have been tens of thousands of people just like my parents and my grandparents and me and my children who have dedicated our life to fighting for equal rights and civil rights and human rights for everybody, everyone. And when my grandmother and got free of the company store, she kept fighting for civil rights, not just for her family, but for every family. So I'm really, really tired of getting beat up for being a white guy. And honestly, the, the most important part of the racial discussion, which you don't touch and nobody will touch, nobody will say it, but I'm going to say it because it really is true, is this. And that is that if every single white male in America woke up tomorrow morning and was just like full of love and believed in civil human rights for all living homo sapiens and was a fighter and a champion for civil rights, this country would be full coast to coast with racists, bigots, sexists, and extremists of all sorts. It's, race is not just about the white man. If you believe in racial purity of any sort, if you think you can only marry somebody from your clan, if you think you can only look at a future within your tribe or within your nation, then you are the problem. Like, you know, if there's an ist or an ism or uh, ish at the end of, like, if you self-identify as being a fundamentalist, a supremacist, those things are kind of automatically assumed to be negative. But if you self-identify as a feminist or an activist or a humanist, those things are, you know, those things are okay. And it, it's just not true, Jay. If you are an ist or an ism, if you self-define as one thing, then you are automatically excluding all other things, and that makes you a bigot. Anyway... 
keep up the good work, Jay. Thanks for having the conversation, but let's expand it. Let's include everybody's hate. You have a good day. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So there were just too many voicemails that I really wanted to play on today's show, so I let them go really long. So I'm just going to leave it here for today, but I can't wait to see what sort of great responses these messages are sure to generate. So again, uh, call in with your thoughts on any of these issues, 202-999-3991. That's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the program. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, now black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Bitch, burn it on a shiny sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room. Whose shadow bases the floor. Take you out any open door This is not my